come to listen to me, it's been over 10 years or somewhere around 10 years since I stood in this pulpit and preached. So uh, I was a little nervous, I got to admit, to come up here. 10 years for a guy my age is a long time. The speech is not what it used to be. My mind doesn't quite work like it used to. Pastor had asked me if I was, would be able to preach on one Sunday. And I told him, give me a few days to pray about it and to think about it. And then the Lord, here I am. What can I say? But I'm honored that I was even asked. So thank you, Pastor. Thank you for your introduction. And for all the years that we could worship together in this church, there was a time when Mike and I took turns. And like I told Mike this morning, if our pastor, that was before you, Lucas, pastor wasn't here, we would just look at each other, and whoever wore a jacket and a tie was the one who preached. So, I got my old pulpit here to hold on to, which is good. I'm used to this thing. And... Uh, I thank Pastor for the opening prayer. So we do ask the Lord to work in our hearts, in our minds, and to use me to preach the word to you, not for my sakes, but for the Lord's sake. I have always said, if I'm up on the pulpit and I fall flat on my face, Lord, I will fall on my face for you. So this is where we are. We have our message from Luke 16, 19 and following. Before we go there, many years ago, we were in Jamaica. That was a long time ago. On that particular Saturday, we figured we'd go to the marketplace looking for some souvenirs to take home for the children. It was pretty crowded on that Saturday. And in the distance, I heard Christian music playing. So my wife and me, we followed the music. There was a boot stand, had a canopy over it that read Sunshine Boot. And I thought, that is quite interesting. So we walked closer, and there was a pleasant young man evangelizing the gospel. He was telling the people about the love of God and how he died for our sins, and he was really very pleasant to listen to. And a lot of people gathered. We were Christians already for a long time, so we moved on. And maybe half a dozen boots down, there I saw a man on a platform holding a Bible. 
And it was interesting. There were just a few people there. So we walked closer, and I could overhear one of them say, fire and brimstone. And I thought, oh no. So I, we went up and I listened. And he says, people, you need to repent. If you don't repent, you will wind up in hell. You will be in fire. And I thought, wow, what a difference. Two evangelists thought about it. They were both right. But the style of preaching was different. So people better love to hear somebody that preaches kindness, that preaches love of Christ. People don't want to hear about hell and torment. That's not a subject that is very popular. And I thought to myself, over the years, I have heard very few messages being preached on hell. So when I considered this passage, I thought, I don't know if I want to preach on it. But then, Jesus presents us with two sides. He presents us with the love of God, and he presents us with the consequences of not knowing Christ. And that's important to me. You see, if you ever had a conversation with somebody, and the conversation sort of left, led into afterlife, after you die, where would you go? If that person you talked to was not a Christian, that conversation would change in a minute. When I was chaplain at the hospital, I had the chance to talk to a lot of people about their afterlife, especially when I was called into emergency. And you would talk, and if you would ask them what they believe, if they go to church, and if what they think about Christ, is he your savior? And do you, would you go to heaven if you would die? The answer usually would be, I hope so. That was, for me, the time to pull out my little Bible, go to 1 John 5.13, and there I would read to them, John writes, I write these things unto you that you may know you have eternal life. So there were no maybes, no buts. Some of them accepted the Lord, others didn't. Then I got, I got to meet people. They just didn't believe in hell. They believed in heaven. It's wonderful. She says, we have a loving God. He wouldn't send us to this place of torture. And then there were others. They said, when you die, it's all done with. It's over. Nothing after that. And I thought back of my life before I met Christ. And guess what? I had the same line of reasoning than they had. I would think that a loving God would not send me to this awful place 
because I'm not a liar. I'm not a cheat. I don't steal things for a living. And I certainly haven't killed anybody. And then my conscience says, well, you made little excuses here and there that were not quite kosher. But I said, that's not really lying. And you took a little pen or something there. And I told myself, well, everybody does it. That's not stealing. But then I was so certain because I haven't killed anybody. The Lord would look favorably upon me. And I thought, I'm really a pretty good guy. I work hard. I support my family. We pay the bills. So God, here I am. And then when I did something really bad, my conscience talked to me and said, I wonder how God is going to handle this one. Well, I tried not to think about dying, about hell or heaven. So I thought it might be very nice if you just die and everything is over with. No more responsibilities, no more bills to pay, no more hurts, no more pain. I thought that might be good, but then again, I had to listen to my conscience. And my conscience asked me, what is the purpose of life? Why are you here on earth? And remember, if that's all you have, this life, and then you die, you pass away, you have absolutely no hope. And I thought our lives are actually built on hope. When we were children, we wished for our Christmas gift, for our birthday gift. We hoped we would get that new bike. And if we got it, we were so happy. You grow older, you hope to make your driver's license. You hope to get a car. And then you hoped you would get a good job, do well in school, marry that person of your dreams, have children and live happily ever after, and have enough for your retirement, for the golden years. The problem is sometimes, the golden years, you spend more time at the, at the doctor's office than you do on vacation, which you thought you were going to do. Travel. Well, anyways, a life without Christ is a life without hope. Somebody said, you should not wish hell on a fly, and that over the gates of hell there should be a sign that would read, whoever enters here abandons all hope. And I thought that was really hard. That bad. made me think. I did some research, and I thought, well, I don't know if I make it into heaven the way I live. 
And then I thought, I certainly will not be one of the 144,000 that make it. And I don't want to come back as a mosquito or a fly or some kind of warden. I thought, oh no. And then I learned that Jesus Christ taught more about hell than he did about heaven. You know, it's interesting that he warns us. I have looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at Matthew when he says, You have heard that it had been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Whosoever looks upon a woman and lusts after her, has committed adultery in his heart already. And then he goes on and says, If your right eye makes you to sin, plug it out, throw it away, for it is better for you to go into heaven having one member of your body missing than to be thrown into hell. And then he goes on and he says, if your right hand offended, cut it off, throw it away. It would be much, much better if you go into heaven having one part, one member of your body missing than to be thrown into hell. And I thought, well, he preaches like the man in Jamaica with the Bible. You know, he gives us a bad news. And not only in Matthew, I looked it up in Mark, what Mark says. Basically the same thing. But then Mark adds something that Jesus describes what this place looks like. He says this place is where the worms never stop eating them. And the fire is never quenched. I said, yeah, this is Jamaica's preaching from that one wood. Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he telling us what it would be like? Think about it. Your children, you get them out of the car in the parking lot, and they just take off. They don't look left and don't look right. And you run after them. And you try to get them back. Take them in your arms. And then you tell them, oh, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? I'm so proud of you, the way you dodged the cars and all of that. You had a good time, isn't it? I don't think so. I think you would tell them how dangerous that was and what the consequences would be, that their ouchies wouldn't be little ones, but that they could wind up in a hospital. Why do you tell them those bad things? Because you love them. And that's why Jesus tells us what it would be like if we don't listen to him. I'm so grateful for a God that loves us. 
You know what? Jesus talks a lot about eternity. Matter of fact, the Bible mentions eternity almost 64,000 times. I thought that was a printing error. 64,000, not quite, but about. So I figured that must be important to God. Can you just imagine eternity? What comes to your mind when you think about eternity? Is there a timeline that you can think of? You know, we think of time from minutes, hours, years, whatever. Eternity, the more I thought about it when I prepared this, there actually is no timeline. It's just there. God, in the Bible says that God lived from forever into eternity, forever. Jesus tells us, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, eternity. Imagine having eternal life. When next time you go to the beach, take a handful of sand, and try to guess how many kernels of sand you got in your hand. We do that all the time with jelly beans. How many are in that jar? Then we count them, and whoever had the right number is the winner. It doesn't take that long. Just imagine how long that would take you to count every single grain of sand that you have in your hand. If you would make it during your lifetime, then I would ask you to count every grain of sand on the beach that you are in. That's almost unthinkable. And just to stretch this a little further, try to count every grain of sand on all of Chicago's 32 beaches. And then remember, this is when eternity has just begun, if it had a beginning. That would be about it. That I cannot comprehend. I would not be able to explain. And I would say, like Mr. Ingelman always says, I cannot put my arms around that. That would be for sure. I couldn't put my arms around that at all. Now, let us go to our text. Just before we get to Luke 16, verse 19, we have Jesus in uh, verse 14, before that, talking about the kingdom of God, and then the Pharisees, like usual, they were trying to trip him up. Actually, what it says Jesus says, the Pharisees who love money heard all this and were, were uh, sneaking to, they were actually trying to trip him up. 
And Jesus said, you, to the Pharisees, are the ones who justify yourself before men. But God knows your heart. And I thought, how to? I thought of a little story where these two friends, a little girl, picks up her friend, her neighbor, and they walk together to school. And one morning, the friend heard that her mom has told her, remember, God is watching you. And the, they walked a little bit, and the other girl said, that has to be awful. She says, it's God watching you all the time? She says, yes. Man, I wouldn't want that. And that little girl says, but you don't understand. God cannot take his eyes off of me. He loves me that much that he cannot take his eyes off of me. That is a wonderful thought. That is actually what, what we see in our passage when Jesus talks about tells us about two different men living two different lives, dying two different deaths, going to two different destinations, spending eternity in two different places. He starts out that there was a rich man. He was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived luxuriously all the days of his life. And the pastor's translation read something in that effect luxuriously. I couldn't even pronounce it presumptuously all the days of his life. Well, anyways, and then he goes on, and there was a poor man. His name was a beggar. His name was Lazarus. He was late on, before the gates of the palace, if you would, of the rich man. And he was longing to eat the crumbs or the food that fell off the rich man's table. When I first read that, I thought, he couldn't be at the door gate. How would he get the crumbs? He would probably be by the table. And that couldn't be right because his hands would go between their legs. Not go, but, you know, in those days, whatever fell on the floor was swept out. Swept out through the door. Lazarus would pick up whatever he could. Whatever was swept out of the door. Many, many years ago, there was a TV show that was called The Rich and the Famous. I don't know who remembers that, but what they would do, they would show you the lifestyle of some rich family, some famous family. Their names could be a household word. And they would start out by showing you how they dress, 
their latest fashions, how they would party, what they would eat, who the guests were that were invited at those parties. And then they would also show you the hobbies that some of these had. And watching that, I thought, they surely are dressed in purple. The latest fashions, the finest of materials, designed by the greatest designers. And they would eat at those parties uh, delicacies that I could not even imagine. The finest wines, the finest foods, and their hobby often was that the man collected cars. And the reporter asked, how many cars are in your garage? I thought to myself, this is not a garage, this is a warehouse. And they asked, how many cars? He says, well, let's put it that way. I could drive a different car every day of the month. And the reporter asked him, how do you decide what car you're going to drive on a particular day? And the man answered, that all depends on the mood I'm in. And I'm thinking to myself, they have a car for every mood that they're in. <laughs> People normally have one or two cars. We have two cars. One is a little better. The other one is an older car. And we drive whatever car is available to us. Never thought about driving one of the cars because I feel in that particular mood. And then I looked and I said, we all are rich. Let's face it. We are rich. And you know, the thing is, we were in Paris, and right off of the Louche, there was a little street that walked in, full of boutiques. We looked at the window. There was maybe one dress or one suit. It was dark on the inside, so I tried to, my curiosity, go in and maybe look at the twice back of that dress. They were closed. Then somebody told me, you can only go there by appointment. And they would have a fashion show for you alone, and you could pick out whatever you want. And I'm thinking to myself, what a waste. You know, we're rich, but I wouldn't want to be that rich. No way, I thought. But so many people thinking that they want to have that lifestyle about winning the lottery, pursuing this lifestyle. And you know, Jesus shows us the other side of the spectrum. He says, at the doors or gates, there was a beggar, Lazarus. He longed to eat 
what fell off the rich man's table. I'm thinking to myself, Lazarus did not care about the latest of fashions. He did not care about the fabric his clothes were made of. He did not care who designed them. All he cared about that they would keep him warm. He did not shop at Saxe's Fifth Avenue. He took clothes that people gave him, or the Salvation Army, if you would. His sandals was, were his transportation. He didn't have a car. And he only was hoping that they would be comfortable and not wear out soon. Jesus tells us that he had sores on his body and that the dogs licked the sores. So think about it. He must have been a lonely man. He probably didn't have too many friends. And he certainly was not able to throw a party. So Lazarus was on the other side of the spectrum. And then we uh, Jesus tells us the time had come when Lazarus died. And angels ministered to him and carried him into heaven next to Abraham. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, that is great. I can just envision this heavenly parade, angels singing, music. They're carrying Lazarus along heaven's highway, and they're bringing him right into heaven. And I'm saying, oh, what a day. What a wonderful day that will be when my Lord Jesus, face to face, I will see. Then he says, the rich man died, and he was buried. My mind imagines looking into a hole in the ground, a coffin, people throwing dirt over it, and that was it. But no, it's not. We're not told how the rich man got into hell, Nobody tells us. There was no parade, apparently. There were no angels. He got into hell, and he was in agony. He was suffering. And the interesting part about all this is, when you read it, that in hell, people will have all their senses. He has the sensation of thirst. So he looks up. He can see. He can recognize people. He recognized Abraham. He recognized Lazarus. And he can talk. Or he can, he prayed, like the King James Version says. And he said, I pray thee, Abraham, Please send Lazarus over here. Have him dip dip his fingers in some water and put it on my tongue 
because I'm in agony and I would like to have some water to cool off my tongue. You know, he said, Abraham, I pray thee. And I wondered, in the King James, and I wondered if he has ever prayed on earth. And it's interesting that the rich man learned to pray in hell. That's where he learned to pray. And then I, Abraham said, but no, my son, you had everything possibly that on earth that you could have. You only had the good, and Lazarus had the bad things. And now you're being tormented in agony, and Lazarus is being comforted. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus never ever mentions the name of the rich man. Sorry. He only mentions the beggar's name, Lazarus. I thought, why is that? Doesn't he like rich people? He only likes the poor people? And then I'm thinking, no, the Old Testament is full of rich people that have been blessed by God. And they did live a godly life. But Jesus had also said, it is hard for a rich man to get into heaven, for it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God. And I wondered why. Would you imagine you have need for nothing at all? Everything you wanted is at your fingertips. And most of the time, there are most people, rather, they don't have a need for God either. So it's not that he doesn't like rich people. It is that they don't have a need for God. Now, Lazarus, the beggar, has a name. And I wondered, how come? And Jesus in Mark 9, I believe, follows up with something and he says that the gatekeeper opens the gate and he calls his sheep in. And his sheep know his voice and he calls all of his sheep by name. I'm thinking, my goodness, Lazarus is a sheep in Jesus' flock. No wonder he knows his name. And after that, the rich man asked Father Abraham, I have a family. I have five sons you know that he has compassion. He was, has feelings for others. And he says, please send Lazarus to them and warn them that they would not come to this place 
of torture. And Abraham said, no, my son, there is this big chasm between you and us. We cannot, first of all, go over to them, and they cannot come over to us. And neither, he says, if Lazarus would go and warn your family, they would not believe. He says they have Moses, they have the prophets, and still they don't believe. The rich man says, oh no, Abraham, if somebody from the dead would come and warn them, they surely would believe. And Abraham replied, even if somebody would rise from the dead, they still would not believe. You know, I had that question put to me. That we would believe if somebody that we know would come back from the dead and tell us what it's like. My answer usually was, would you really trust somebody and believe in somebody that you haven't even trusted on earth? I said, don't you know that Jesus died for you, for your sins? He suffered for you, and he rose again. He came back from the dead. I would much rather believe that than somebody that I know coming back from the dead that would be spooky. And to believe that would be another story. But you know, there is one thing in this whole story that I left for basically my closing. And that is when Abraham asked them, the rich men, to remember. You know that people have a memory in hell. That is hard. You would remember every lie that you have ever told. The fornicator would remember everything that he had ever longed for. And the thief would remember everything he had taken that was not his own. And the judge or the politicians would remember every unjust verdict they have handed down because they were bribed. But also, we would also remember that every sermon that we have heard, every invitation that was given, and we said, no, thank you, Lord, not today. We would remember the excuses we made. We would remember when we walked out on the Lord and being in a place of torment, the people would wish they could do it all over again. And remember that the God that loves us 
will tell us the truth. And I thank God for warning us that we would not wind up in this terrible place that Jesus describes where the worm that eat them never dies. And the fire that is quenched, the fire that burned is never quenched. That's an amazing statement. And I'm thinking, this is horrible. I really don't want to go there. So one day, I was sitting in the bar before Christ. A sign stared me in the face, and it read, Don't be discouraged. You are never, ever a failure. You can always serve as a bad example. And I said, whoopee to myself, is this what I'm living for? Will this be on my tombstone? This guy was not a failure. He always served as a bad example. I thought, oh no, that I didn't want to happen. So when the Lord came into my life, I felt like sunshine did. The guy with the boot, and when he had mentioned his name, he says, I'm sunshine. And people ask him, how come you got that name? And he said, when Christ came into my life, my life changed. And sunshine came into my life, he says. I could see my eyes were opened. He says, and therefore, Christ is in me, and he brings me sunshine. And that is amazing. We have a choice here on earth. The Bible tells us it is appointed for men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And in all our passage that we read, Jesus never tells us that you can be prayed into heaven. There is no such thing. Jesus tells us that we are warned in what we need to do. And remember John 3.16, that he loved the world so much that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he goes on and says, he did not come into this world to condemn it, but to save it. And the next verse would say, if you believe in the Son of God, you are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already. So I leave you with a message. If somebody be in here that is not sure of where they're going, somebody that is uncertain, I would ask you, 
This is the day to come to accept Jesus Christ and not to go to this place of horror. So, Father, I just want to thank you that you have warned us, that you love us so much, that you tell us what we can expect, what the consequences.